there we go. The, we'll continue on this, and I'll also be preaching today, as I said. So let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you that we have an opportunity to gather, to study your word together. Pray for Eric that he'd find the answers he needs and get healing so they can uh, rapidly get back functioning and uh, that it, there would be no permanent damage. Pray for others who are uh, been harmed, like Ashley, for my wife Diane, who's recovering from the ankle surgery. Give us grace to reach out to each other, pray for each other, and give us wisdom as we look into your word that we might serve you with grace and strength and uh, give you praise and honor in all we do. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this, the reason this uh, is highly important, this material in Acts 20, is that there are very few passages that are more important in helping us define the church, the message of the church, and the leadership of the church. And the reason I say that is that here in Ephesus, where Paul had spent three years, according to his own testimony, and this is where Timothy ended up. So the, the two epistles to Timothy, he was based at Ephesus. And so Ephesus is an important place in the New Testament. But in this particular uh, message, the speech, the way Luke Acts is written, this is very, very important. The most important, the longer, more detailed speeches Luke uses to tell us important themes in Luke Acts and fill in the details. And there's only so much space in these Greek manuscripts, so he uses longer ones to tell us what's important. So Paul's long message to the Jew, the synagogue, and with Jews and Gentiles in the city of Antioch tells us the most about that. His long message in Athens to the philosophers tells us so long as we have where he's speaking to a pagan Gentile audience, tells us the most about the message to the Greek world that's lost. And here in Acts 20 is the longest message in Acts where he's speaking to the church and its leadership. And an astute reader of Luke Acts will realize, pay attention, this is the most important. This will tell us a lot. So I'm already here on part four, and I am trying to give due diligence to the importance of this, including looking into details. I want to see the details and the and synonymous parallelisms and the way Paul would lay things out. If the church had done this through the centuries, there'd be an awful lot of errors that never would have happened. But frankly, the institutional church is, could care less about what Paul says to the Ephesian elders for the most part. Okay, so we covered this but I, I want to show some parallels as we continue to do this. I think this is about where we were last time. 
in verse 24, he says this, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly, it's an intensified uh, word in the Greek, of the gospel of the grace of God. So some of the parallels we need to pay attention to are how he describes the gospel. Here's the gospel of the grace of God. And we covered this, so I I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it. Uh, I I don't know if I quoted Peterson. Let me do so. It's in my notes. Another good commentary. Luke makes the point that both Peter and Paul shared the same gospel of God's grace. The grace of God is regularly the subject of the gospel in Paul's letters. And then he cites references. Elsewhere in Acts, the gospel is mostly called the word. See, these parallel statements that are synonymous do not imply different gospels. I made a mistake last week, and I want to thank someone here who corrected me. I mentioned dispensationalists who divide things up. What I'm talking about are hyper-dispensationalists, the sort of dispensationalist who believes that the church, the church age doesn't preclude God's future dealings with Israel, um, would agree with what I'm saying here. Traditional dispensationalists that would not make wrong distinctions. So thank you for correcting me. Um, Hyper-dispensationalist claims that Peter had a different gospel. Jesus had a different gospel. Paul has a different gospel. Some even claim that the church doesn't exist until somewhere at the end of Acts. And so I want to warn you not to listen to that. It will confuse you. It'll harm you. The only one whose opinion matters is the Holy Spirit-inspired author, Luke, who wrote the truth here. There's only one book of Acts. Now, that should be a truism. Sadly, it's not. We have people writing about Acts 29 that doesn't exist because they want to have a new, their own agenda. Emergent does that. Acts 29. There's no Acts 29. Um, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has a slightly different emphasis. But Matthew didn't write Acts. Luke did. Start with the same author, interpreting it according to that author. So Luke Acts is a two-volume work by the same author. Okay, so they have the same gospel, so don't listen to anybody that says otherwise. I covered that. Now here, I think I showed you this slide as well. These are key words. Um, This is like a stadium. Finish the course. So the calling of one's ministry in life is like a race to run. It needs to be finished. They need to be focused. They need to be prepared for it. It's a ministry of service. Diakonia. Because deacons are persons appointed to make sure service happens, the, the two um, ministries are 
offices of the church are elders and deacons. There are no other ones mentioned in the New Testament other than apostles and prophets, but we're saying in many arenas there are no new apostles and prophets that give binding and authoritative revelation. That's uh, what the New Apostolic Reformation is trying to tell us, but they're false. They're wrong. False prophets don't do anybody any good. And uh, so that's that. I'm wanting to show you that this will lay out what actual uh, offices there are. To finish, teleao means to run it to the end. This is an important message. A lot of us here are older than uh, some of the other people in the world out there. Here's something to think about. And I've thought about that because I've had enough problems in my life over the decades. What matters more than anything else is how we finish. And one of the rare things, even in the lives of a lot of the biblical people um, that we read about, is finishing well. It's very, very hard to finish well. And that is something to think about. What am I like? Am I, is God at work? Is the grace of God changing me? Am I able? Whatever diminished abilities we have as we get older, are we still people that reflect the, the, the love of Christ, uh, concern for the body of Christ, concern for our families, concern for the testimony that we have before others? And everyone fails here or there in some way. But what happens? Are we able to finish the race? I think I told the story before of how the, I was a cross-country runner in high school, and the best race that I ever had was the last one, the state meet in our class in Marshalltown, Iowa in 19, I think it was 69. It was the year I graduated. Um, there was a race on a golf course, and there were different courses depending on how big the school was. So they had it laid out, so there's all these people, 130 people at the start. The gun goes off. There's no use sprinting. You're just going to trip. There's a mass of people trying to take off to run two miles. And I watched the earlier ones, and they were, they were right at the end. They had it set up so there was a hill. Okay, so people are running to get up there, get positioned, to get in the front, and they're running. And, and I, I went and watched the hill before it was our turn. And at the hill, they all died. They'd already run 1.8 miles or whatever. And they hit the hill in, like, slow motion. <laughs> and they, they just died at the hill. And so I thought, if I don't run well, that great. I don't care how where I start or even where I'm at in the middle of the race. But I got one idea in my mind. When I hit that hill, that's when I'm going to sprint. Because nobody will challenge me. If you try to pass somebody, they challenge you and you wear, you both wear out. So came around to the hill and I took off up that hill. Because I didn't see anybody slow down when they went down to the hill to the finish line. And I passed Boom, 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 past people, past people, past people. Got down to the end, 
And it was the best race I'd been in because I wasn't an elite runner, but I ended up 10th out of 135 runners. And it was only because of finishing well. And uh, a lot of the other people on our team, <laughs> it wasn't a good race for our whole team. And the coach uh, commended me for having my best race. And uh, that, that doesn't mean anything. They're just running. What does it say in First Corinthians 9? They run to receive a temporal wreath. We're running to receive an imperishable one. So that's nothing compared to the imperishable one. It doesn't mean much. I got a medal somewhere, but it doesn't mean much. Um, so I would just encourage all of us, as we're mostly older here, um, let's ask God to help us finish well. Amen. That our, the people around us will be glad that we're in their lives because God's doing a work of grace. So that is on my mind every single day to finish well. Ministry is received from the Lord. We don't volunteer. And there's no use trying to get the most glamorous positions that any given church may have to offer because we don't need that. We need to serve with the gifts God did give us. It's no use saying, I can do this and I can do that one. In fact, maybe you can't. If God does equip us and give us gift, serving it will be a joy and blessing to us and to everyone around us. So it's received from the Lord. So everyone, everyone without exception, who's born of God is called to be a witness, both in word and in deed. The gospel of grace is the content. Now here I show synonymous parallelism. If I had more slides, I could put a third one. Well, we'll get to that. Notice this. This doesn't denote different Gospels, but different ways of saying the same thing. Writers do that. We do that. We should do that. If we're writing, you use synonyms to avoid redundancy. It doesn't mean you're changing topics. So Paul's not changing topics. He's saying the same thing different ways. I just testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And then later he says, I commend you to God in the word of his grace. He's not talking about something different. The word of his grace, the gospel of his grace. And then I think as we go on, preaching the kingdom. Some people say, well, that's different. No, it's not talking about something totally different, a different aspect of the same truth. I'll talk about that in a moment. So here's synonymous parallelisms. We see that in other issues in Luke X, um, one of which has been on my mind for months. And uh, just sit down sometime. I, I don't have time to do this right now, but I would probably need to soon. Sit down with the entirety of Luke X because there's parables, things, events, teachings, and then obvious places, and see how many times there's arguments about who's the greatest or who's got better status. It would be interesting. I, I need to do it because I want to talk, keep talking about this. But if you go through Luke X, the one thing that 
is evident is they, when God's doing a mighty work, there are people in the background, be it the, the scribes and Pharisees, the enemies or the disciples who are arguing about who's the greatest. That continually comes into play. And then in Acts, there are false teachers, one who's, who was called the great power of God. That is so prominent that when you see the ads for the meetings that are coming to different towns by the apostles and prophets, they are shameless in proclaiming their own greatness. Okay, and I get their emails. Just, they can't get enough of it. And they even brag about what great miracles they can do and that they're going to teach you how to get into the highest levels of heaven. If they had a fundamental understanding of what Satan actually uses to shoot us down, they would run from that and avoid it at all costs. Because the fall didn't happen because Eve was thinking about serving. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can be like God. You know, if you're going to gain status, why mess around with just naming the animals? They already had that. Go for the top. Be like God. You can't get any better than that. And so we know his devices. Satan's devices devices to get us filled with pride and thinking we're more important than everybody else and to want knowledge and power that God hasn't given us. So knowing that, if you know that, then what would you want to avoid? The temptation to have status and power and to rule over others in a way that's not for their benefit, but for your own. That's what I think we, we need to realize. Go ahead. Satan's job is so easy. All he has to do is appeal to our own heart, yeah, our right. own flesh. Right. I mean, what a slam dunk. Ah, good point. So we need to stay in the boundaries. And um, the, I've told the people lately that's called that found us through critical issues one gift that is such a fantastic gift is the love of the truth. Because if you have a heart that has a love for the truth, you can be corrected. Because once you find the truth and you realize you didn't know it, you're willing to learn. The ones in Thessalonians who give their, who are deceived by Antichrist said because they did not Receive the word decomai, welcome, did not welcome the love of the truth so as to be saved. They didn't even want to know what the truth is, so they end up believing the lie. All right. Now, continuity, I, I think I showed you this. Look, 418 is thematic. Again, Luke's a way of telling us things is by having longer scenes that are very important. Jesus in his hometown synagogue 
is one of those. So I mentioned the city in Antioch is a long speech. The Athens is a long speech. Ephesians elders is a long speech. There's a lot of material, not just speech, but events that react to the speech of Jesus in his hometown. And that is thematic, and it shows you what's going to happen in the rest of Luke Acts. Let me cite some scholars. Tannehill, i got to give him credit. His two-volume scholarly work, The Narrative Unity of Luke Acts, that I first read in the 90s in seminary, made it possible that I could teach Luke Acts in a way that's going to be helpful. So he deserves credit. I'm sure he's with the Lord now. He was a rather senior in the 90s, but he maybe maybe he's lived to be real old. Tannehill, quote, the word of the gospel that Peter preached was one that placed God's word to Israel and Jesus' announcement in the Nazareth synagogue in the context of the realization that God welcomes Gentiles as well as Jews. 10, 34 through 43. The word of the gospel then is a message announcing that the grace of the Lord Jesus provides a way for both Jews and Gentiles to share in God's salvation on the same basis. Paul had been faithfully proclaiming this gospel. This is the message called the gospel of the grace of God in 1024. That was Tannehill. Now let's go to Luke 4.18, if you want to turn there. It sets the stage for everything. How am I doing? Am I not getting excited? <laughs> oh, I gotta hold a, I gotta also preach for an hour, so I want to have enough voices. So I'm trying to be calm. <laughs> calm. <laughs> calm. All right, Luke 418, which is a citation of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, but just part of the citation. Luke 418. The spirit of this is Jesus in his hometown. They turn, they open the scroll. It may have been a miracle that it was on this passage, or maybe they had to scroll through to find it. Luke 14, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Does somebody have it open to verse 19 that could read it? I don't have it on my notes here. Verse 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Yeah, and so what he, does, what he left out is the vengeance of God, which is also in the passage. So why did he leave out the vengeance? Because the first advent is about saving Jews and Gentiles will become the church. The vengeance comes later after the church age. Okay? So that's pretty clear in Luke Acts. The problem with that arises in Luke Acts is the disciples want vengeance now. And I, I think I mentioned uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. There's a preview. When after uh, they came into a village of the Samaritans who were mocking them, 
What did a couple of the disciples want to do? Call down fire. Call down the fire. We want to kill him. No, that's not right. He, Jesus rebuked him. This is, and then later in Acts, he saved Samaritans. This is the church age. During the church age, we don't know which of God's enemies might become converted and part of the church. Amen. We don't know. Sometimes it's shocking who it is. It had to have been shocking. We know it was shocking when Saul of Tarsus was converted. Ananias, a different Ananias than the bad one, didn't want to pray for him. Well, wait, I know about this guy. Why would I pray for him? The Lord said, he's one of mine. Do you know who God's going to convert? No, I don't know. He converted me. That was a miracle. Go ahead. So Jesus, in this instance, is uh, quoting Isaiah, and uh, it, it seems kind of funny that whenever Jesus, and he does it multiple times throughout the New Testament where he's quoting uh, Old Testament prophets, and they want to kill him, and they wanted to kill all of those prophets, and it, it just goes to the point of that uh, Jerusalem rejected uh, yeah. all the prophets in Jesus. Yeah, we've seen that. I, in fact, I preached on that, I think the last time I preached from Luke 13. This is all predicted, but it was necessary that he be rejected because the Bible predicted it, and God cannot lie. And his rejection led to you and I being part of the family of God that we would not have been. So then in Luke 4.22, and all were speaking well of him. So 4.18 he speaks, Luke 4.22, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words, Luke 4.22, the gracious words, the words full of grace, which were falling from his lips and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? But what happens before Luke 4 is done? They want to throw him off a cliff. And he walked through their midst to get out of there. They, as soon as they realized that they had needs, then they wanted to be, be rid of him. In, La, in Acts 15, 7, after there had been much debate, this is when they had to decide whether the Gentiles had to keep the food laws. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Acts 15, 7. The word of the gospel, Acts 15, 7, words of grace, Luke 4, 22, and the gospel of grace, Acts um, 20, 24, I think, they're all the same gospel. Amen. Don't believe people who say there's multiple gospels. Luke isn't telling us that. If you compare all of these, and then the other part of that is, well, repentance has no place in the, the true Christian gospel. I've heard that. Well, that's, but then, okay. Here's something that will help everyone who hears this. Learn how to read. <laughs> it doesn't cost anything to go to somebody's website or turn on the radio show 
who cherry picks verses to build a case. If they can't tell you the whole story, go look for yourself. What, what does it say in context? What is Luke telling us? Don't cherry pick, learn. Okay? So, is repentance only for the Gentiles? Go ahead, Jessica. But keeping this Acts 20 in context, verse 21, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. There it is right there. I know. So Les Feldick has something to answer for. <laughs> but see, here's the, and I wrote about that and I got some um, unhappy people contacting me over the years about criticizing people who teach these sort of things. Do you think it doesn't harm the flock when somebody says repentance has no place for being preached when we preach the gospel? Yes, it harms. Do you think it doesn't harm the message? Do you think it doesn't harm anybody to say the Jews have one gospel, the Gentiles have a different one, Paul has a different one than Peter had, that there's two different churches, or only so on. It's just all of this stuff comes out. Here's, here, here's what to do. Read. Read. Read the text. It'll be good. You'll learn. <laughs> my, one of my favorite teachers at seminary, I've told you this story before, show up in class, he said, well, this is going to be a very unique class. We're going to read the Bible. Um, and so we're going to start with Matthew. So we're reading through Matthew. And if you wanted to say something in class, you better have done your reading because you say something that makes no sense based on what Matthew wrote. He'd call you out and say, well, one guy said, well, I can't say that. Read it again. Well, can't say that. It does say that. Read it again. If you wanted to get a good class, you better have read. Or be good grade, you better have read. Read. So, and read the whole context. And let me tell you this as well. This is powerful. And it changed my life. And so I thank God for uh, getting the tools to be able to read. In, the, in this matter to see the message of the author. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Amen. What we know to be the very words of the Spirit is the Scripture. And it says that in Hebrews. As the Holy Spirit says, and then Scripture is quoted. And if indeed, and I believe in the inspiration of Scripture in the clarity of Scripture, in the authority of Scripture, in the, in, in the inerrancy of Scripture, there's nothing more powerful than what we know the Holy Spirit said. Now, if we get it wrong, which some people will say that when I've debated emergent, they say, well, everybody has their own opinion. They've been disagreeing with this for centuries. And so the implication is, let's give up. In other words, the reader determines the meaning, not the author. And readers have had all kinds of ideas, so therefore mine is as good as yours. Amen. 
I've heard that over and over again, still get emails like that. Get back. Who determines the meaning? The Holy Spirit who has spoken through the biblical authors in the manner in which they wrote, or the reader. All of human language, commerce, government, communications, laws. This I know this is always challenged, but if the author doesn't determine a meaning, you have utter chaos and death. If stop, when you have a stop sign at a busy intersection, is determined by the reader of the sign, who decides it doesn't mean stop, then you have an accident. We have to have a language, valid communication, and understanding each other to have God's word weigh heavily on us and change us. That's necessary. That's why the Bible needs to be translated into the common vernacular. Because the Bible is a great threat to the religious authorities who would harm you. That's why they killed, they hung Tyndale, and after they hung him, they burned his body just to spite him more for having the audacity of translating the Bible into the common vernacular. Now, why kill a guy for doing that? Because it was a threat to both the civil and religious powers that be. Dear ones, we have Bibles. We can read. We can learn. What a shame that we have them, but so much of Christendom has no interest in learning what it says. So somebody said, well, you have your interpretation, I have mine. So that's an attack against the clarity of Scripture. Let me ask us all this question. Yeah, I got it done. Stay calm. <laughs> I got to preach for an hour after this. That's why I say that. If we could come to know what it means and have a valid application that's logically attached, attached to the meaning, is that what we want? Do we want the truth or do we want to keep our religious traditions, whatever they may be, if the truth would upset those traditions? I would say we need to have a love for the truth. That doesn't prove I'm right because I have a mic on. That's why we have this meeting where we, we help each other and have better or worse readings or challenge. But if we do know it and we get it right, that is the Holy Spirit impacting our lives, clarifying our minds, correcting our errors, showing us how he can change us. And when we start saying, well, that's just your interpretation. Other people believe other things. Well, a lot of people, there's a lot of things that are believed, but I'm not right because I'm me. But if I can, by God's grace, understand what he said, I think this is correct. I'm giving you plenty of evidence that this Yuan Galizo, words of grace, the evangel the, to evangelize. Yuan Galizo was used in Luke 4.18, words of grace that they were loved in Luke 4.22. Jesus, they're synonymous. Peter, Paul, this is the same gospel. I'm giving evidence for that. If somebody says otherwise, I think the burden of proof is on them because the text is telling us something here. The hyper-dispensationalists say, 
the Jews have a different gospel, the burden of proof is on them because they're going against the text. So repentance, metanoeo, to change. Now, it literally means to change your mind, but we know from synonymous terms, it means to turn your whole life around. It isn't just to think differently. It's also to live differently. And because the synonymous would be repentance, obviously preached on the day of Pentecost and elsewhere. But at the end, Paul says that they might turn from being idols to serve the living God. To turn from and serve is to repent. It's the same thing. So it's preached many places. Okay, Acts 2.38, Peter said to repent, be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Ask yourself this question. Is the forgiveness of sins still important? Release, aphasis, release, release. What puts people in bondage? Sin. What's greater than release? Nothing, because now you can serve the living God. Yes. Yeah, you know, uh, on the subject of only one gospel, there's just so much evidence, you know, all over the place. And I guess a couple comments. One, it's taken me a while to realize this. You know, there, there just aren't any shortcuts. I remember when I was a kid in high school, you know, we'd have to write book reports, and some people would buy the cliff notes. And I was dumb. I would read the book. <laughs> yeah, but then with the Bible... A lot of us just want the cliff notes, and that's just, it's so much easier in the long run just to go to the Bible and learn it comprehensively, and I think maybe good commentaries are good, getting good, but so many people, we need to have the, the correct foundation, and then we can spot the false teaching. We need the tools. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Versaput said, um, you can use any commentary you want, on the papers I asked you to write, but beware, it might get you a worse grade. Yeah, because not right. every, because I have Logos Bible software, and I'm very thankful. It gives me tons of powerful tools. But they used to have, one. Of, when you look in there, what do you get? Here's one commentary. Here's a whole series. Luke, from a Wesleyan perspective, they have versions for Roman Catholic, for seven-day Adventists. I'm not blaming Logo software, but I'm not interested or from Calvin's perspective or from... I want to know... A critical commentary would be going to the original and looking at various things that have been said and giving evidence for what it says. Yeah, that's, that's right. So... I avoid the parochial commentaries. They don't help me. No, no, not those, but the kind that you're working with. And, and, yeah, uh, critical I, yeah. doesn't mean you're criticizing the Bible. Right, right. It means that you're thinking critically about what is and is not true. Yeah, for me it was like learning the context. Yeah, and, and, get, Glyph Notes is a yeah, good analysis. Yeah. Read the book itself. Right, and, and uh, the culture. I was going to add one more thing, too, you know these people who talk about more than one gospel. Isaiah, uh, I'm looking at Isaiah 49 right here, the, the four uh, songs of the suffering servant of, of Yahweh. And it's the same uh, scripture proves scripture. And so right. it says right here, 49 verse 6, 
He says, and this is God, he's speaking of the suffering servant, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That's one salvation. Yeah. That's the gospel in the Old Testament, the Great Commission in the Old Testament. You bet. I just wanted to add one other thing, and that is when you say read, learn how to read, learn how to read. I think the thing that I'm learning as I learn to read more and more is that um, it's organic. The uh, scripture is organic. Uh, the triune God is a wholeness. It's organic. And we're so used to slicing and dicing in a Greek kind of way in that... Um, it, but when you learn to read and what God has to say, it's because he says it in a way which we're so not used to. We're, we're used to thinking in terms of toothpicks and things adding up and all that. And uh, it's giving your life or your given life. Uh, and it's an organic thing. It's not a uh, uh, platonic ideas thing. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's, a, it's an amazing thing about proving the Bible is the inspired word of God, is the continuity from Genesis to Revelation. And these are different authors over many thousands of years. And it's the same message. The fall in Genesis and the promises of the uh, salvation in Genesis set the stage for the whole Bible. I don't think anybody could have made that up and got it right. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. To read the whole counsel of God. Yes, Linda. As you talk about who determines the meeting, the reader or the author, um, there's a popular Bible study method. I'm not going to say who does it, but um, I believe their main thing is like you read through each verse and then you look at what it's saying, but the big part of it is what it says to you. That's would yeah, be that, rather problematic. Thanks for it? bringing that up. That has become very common in Bible studies, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Now, that's different than saying, how does it apply? Because applications have to be logically attached and follow from the text. Meaning is already there. It's not going to change. So what it means to me isn't important. How it applies authoritatively, or how can I believe what's said and learn from what's said and live what's said? What it means to me means if you have 13 people in the Bible study, you get 13 meanings, and God has said nothing. I use the simple test who would stop at a stop sign if it means something different to everybody? It already does. Even though we agree it means stop, it means slow down, and if you don't see anybody, hit the gas. Boom, that's what they do in our neighborhood. Go ahead. Um, is this on? Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to share Second uh, Peter one twenty and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Right. 
I got an email from a person disagreeing with me and my assessment of uh, Keswick Holding. No, who was that? Uh, Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers. I sent that to you, didn't I? Yes. Oh, I'm a pastor. And whoever said it said, you are wrong about Oswald Chambers. He didn't allegorize. But the thing in question there, he did allegorize. And it had to do... Uh, oh, the mountaintop experience. In other words, the point of transfiguration is a mountaintop experience. And then when you go down after the mountaintop experience, now emotionally, you go down into the valley. And I, I said that was allegorizing. That was not the point. And so the guy sent me this thing. So what I sent back was right from Peter. I said, well, what if we allow Peter to interpret the transfiguration in his own words? And I sent him back that a section where it says we had the word made more certain. He was referring to transfiguration. So what happened on transfiguration wasn't my personal mountaintop experience and now I'm down in the dregs. There was the voice. It was the God affirming who Jesus is. And Peter wrote about that. So I sent that back to the guy. So hopefully he was satisfied with that. I haven't heard back. So go ahead. This is just tying into the reading, um, learning to read idea. Because, you know, when you read scripture, it's not like trying to understand the Constitution. Because we are going to it where God has spoken and he is authority. And that's the huge part. I can't have my feelings dictate. God has spoken. And I think about... um, Second Peter 3.16, and everyone's familiar with it, but every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for Amen. correction, and for training in righteousness. So when somebody comes and says that, oh, we only read the red letters, or we only read what Paul preaches because, you know, that's for the Gentiles, that is completely contradicting scripture, and I can boldly stand on this particular yeah. one verse because it is from God who has authority. Amen. I totally agree. And that's, here's another thing. Uh, what we've said for some decades, well, when, when I've taught like this in the past, people say, well, so many people don't, they don't believe the Bible. Or they, they think the Bible was uh, translated wrongly, or they don't, they just have their doubts. But what did Paul say to Timothy the time will come when they won't receive I'm getting ahead of myself preach the word be I'm thinking the King James be instant in season and out for the time will come when they won't listen to sound doctrine is that about right listen Paul wasn't seeker sensitive well they don't want sound doctrine hire a firm to do uh a test, you to go out and do a survey to see what they do want and then give them that. No. They won't they want sound doctrine, so what should you do? Preach sound doctrine. Why? Because sound doctrine doctrine isn't a dirty word, it just means teaching in the Greek. Didoskal didoskalos or didoskalo I think I got that right. To teach. Sound doctrine is simply taking truths like the deity of Christ proclaiming them. And that will, God, God will use it. One more verse, Luke 24, 47. Jesus said this, that repentance for forgiveness, release 
from sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So if they begin in Jerusalem and they preach forgiveness of sins, which Peter did on Acts 2.38, which should tell you something, Peter was there when Jesus said that they should preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. When Peter does preach repentance for forgiveness of sins, that should tell you something. Luke is telling us that Peter did what Jesus told him to do. And he did it in Jerusalem, the Jews. Oh no, repentance is only for the Gentiles. Or it's only for the Jews, it's not for the Gentiles. No, it's for all. Because then it goes on to all the nations. Here's how the church gets deceived. The false teachers jump here to here to here to here to here, finding verses that seem to say what they're saying and won't even... How often does a false teacher even tell you a whole paragraph? How often will they tell you a whole chapter? How often will they tell you what the whole book says? They don't. The word of faith has one passage they like in Mark. You shall have whatsoever you saith. <laughs> Speak the word. You'll have whatever you saith. <laughs> Kenneth Hagin, I still remember him saying that on the radio. And uh, that's all they know. We've got to make some progress. Here we go. Verse 25. We've got 10 minutes. We've got to cover it. It's not even 10. Now, Paul's teaching Ephesian elders. Now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. So, Paul does not believe that he'll be back to Ephesus. And he does know that he's going to Jerusalem. He does know that afflictions await him and that he'll be rejected there. And we find out later that he does for sure. That does happen. And Jesus appears to him in um, Acts 23, 11, and says that he must also testify in Rome. So that all happens. So, but notice what he was preaching. We already know the gospel of grace. We know the word of the gospel, the word of the forgiveness of sins. Now we have another theme the preaching the kingdom. Now, why would Paul be preaching the kingdom if the kingdom's only for the Jews and they rejected it? So therefore, now we have plan B. That's what we're told by some teachers. But that's not what Luke tells us. It's not what Paul said. He was preaching the kingdom. Now, how would you be preaching the kingdom when earlier in Acts, of course, Paul wasn't there then. He wasn't converted yet. They said, now are you restoring the kingdom to, uh, to Israel. And he said, the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, not for you to know, but you shall be my witnesses. So how are you preaching the kingdom when the time for the restoration is fixed by the yet future? Because those who repent and believe the gospel are being added. Okay? They're being built on the foundation of Christ and his apostles. Christ the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets. Everyone who believes and receives forgiveness of sins is part of the family of God and will be part 
when he comes back to establish millennial kingdom, he comes back with the church. We'll be part of it. So he's preaching in terms of entrance. Not, he wasn't preaching, let's, uh, let's uh, join an ar- get an army and get rid of Rome, and then we'll have our kingdom. He was preaching in terms of entrance into the eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God is part of the message and not just for the Jews. Luke 4, 43, 8, 1, 9, 11, Acts 1, 3. Luke 4, 43, he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities. Luke 8, 1. Jesus going around from one city proclaiming to preach and preaching the kingdom of God. That's Luke 8, 1. Luke 8, 9, 11. But the crowds were aware of this Followed him, walking, walking them, and he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Acts 1 3. To these, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. In Luke, Acts, Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. Here, in Acts 20, 25, he said, I went about preaching the kingdom. I'll tell you this, I think, with strong evidence, hopefully clarity, that Luke intentionally does this. This is thematic. They wanted the kingdom now. They wanted to defeat the enemies now. But God had it, the plan of adding people from all the nations as citizens who will later reign with him when the kingdom does come, but that won't be until the millennium. Does that make sense? Luke isn't saying this so that we get the idea that we should divide this up in three or four different ways. Paul in Rome to the Jews, Acts 28, 23, let me cite that. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was, this is Acts 28, by the way, and he's explained to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. That was the Jews. Now let's go to Acts 28:31, Preaching the kingdom of God and testifying concerning the Lord Jesus with all openness. No, let's go back to verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. This was in Rome. It was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and testifying concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. The very end of Acts, Paul is preaching to Jews about the kingdom of God and to all, whoever they were, with all openness about the kingdom of God. Don't tell me this is all divided up. People I've known well who no longer live in town say, oh, no, it's different. But Luke didn't know that. Maybe some people know something Luke didn't know, but I don't believe it. He was inspired by the Spirit. So the very end of Acts, there's still the kingdom of God taught to Jews and to Gentiles 
and forgiveness of sins. So how are you going to enter the kingdom? By believing Jesus Christ. How do you go through the narrow gate? Uh, believing the, what offends everybody to the Jews, an offense, a scandal on, a scandal to, to the Gentiles' foolishness, but to those who are the called, the power of God. Do you believe in forgiveness of sins, the Lordship of Christ, that you will be part of that kingdom? Citizenship's already in heaven, and someday he'll come back with the church. So I'm saying on the authority of Scripture that this is the message. This is a preview. Therefore, verse 26, we'll start here next time. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Oh, boy, there's plenty to say about that. Um, Blood guiltiness, what is that? I don't know when Eric will be back. If he's back by next Sunday, he'll probably be teaching Sunday school here. Otherwise, I'm doing it. This, whenever I am, we'll go to this. Uh, what does it mean? That, by the way, the implication is that if you change it and don't tell people about release from sins, don't tell them the whole truth, you don't tell them about the cross, you don't tell them about repentance, you don't tell them what God said, that's accruing guilt. By being forthright about it, you're innocent of the blood of all men. It doesn't mean they all believe but you told them what you needed to tell them. I wouldn't want to have to say to the Lord, I could have told them about forgiveness. I could have told them about how to know you, but I didn't want to offend anybody. That's the fear of man that brings a snare. Let's close the prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness. May we learn how to uh, read and learn. And Lord, may you graciously give each of us a love for the truth that will Cause us to study, to know what you've said, and then encourage one another as we apply what you've said to our own lives. Thank you for what you've done. Do pray for Eric's healing, that his knee would recover and he would get mobility. And we do pray that you would help us during a sermon to make clear what you've said in your word. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, dear saints.